You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Saturday in the Park, recorded on June the 4th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to jump right into chapter 2, verse 23 to 3, verse 6. So go ahead and open your Bible, electronic or paper or whatever kind of Bible you use, um, and uh, we're going to jump right into Mark. It's good to always remember that God is on your side. God is for us, not against us. The whole Bible is a book. I, I love the, the line um, in, it's in so many songs um, that... Uh, the phrase redeeming love, that those two words go together. God didn't go to the cross in anger at you. He went to the cross in, in, to love you. And, and he, he's always for you. He's on your side. And our particular text in Mark is going to be an example of that. So look at Mark 2, 23 to 3, 6. Ready? Verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, now if you're not used to going to church, the word Sabbath might throw you off. It means the seventh day of the week. Some of you might say, we know that, but hey, when I was just started going to church, I didn't know what any of the words meant, and no one ever explained them to me, so I want to make sure you're out there if, you, if that's you. Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, and for the Jews, that meant a, the day off, and that's a Saturday, by the way. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, And as they made their way, he never went alone, he had his guys with him, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, obviously to eat. Um, And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So now the Pharisees are coming right up to him and saying, you're breaking the law here. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. Now, you may not know that event, and I'm not going to go into detail of that event either, but the point is that many years before and in the Bible, um, great King David went and ate bread that wasn't meant for him, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. Verse 27, then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When again he entered the synagogue and a man was there, this would be a different event, but Mark puts them together, keeping with the theme of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them Heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So the Pharisees, the priests, are watching Jesus to see if they will heal him on the wrong day. They don't mind that he heals them. But you got six days of the week you can go ahead and heal people. Is he going to sin in their eyes and do it on a Saturday? Well, um, (laughs) Jesus said to the man with the withered head, come here. And then he said to them, so I can see, you can almost see the man walking up there. He's like, come here, just stand here for a minute. Maybe he puts his hand on his shoulder. And um, he says, I got this guy here. Let me ask you all a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? 
to save life or to kill? What was the answer they gave? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And the hand was restored. Just wham, that's it. And then the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, that's our our text. I'm going to make some observations about the text and maybe throw some applications in the middle. I'm going to make five. I just had to look at my notes to know how many. Five applications or observations about this text. And that's how we're going to look at it. All right, ready? Here we go. Number one, the divide between Jesus and the religious authority will lead to his crucifixion. This, this divide is starting to grow. We've seen in the past passages, they're, they're thinking things um, that, that they're offended by him. Now they're actually coming right out and telling him that they're offended by him. And, and the, he, he seems to continually set himself up to fight with these, with these men, these priests, um, he, he, he says, withered hand guy, come here. And uh, he says, you guys, I'm about to do something. Um, let's see how mad you get. They are very angry because he's playing in their sandbox, is the way they look at it. They are the priests who determine what Israel does. They are the ones with the rightful authority to teach the scripture. And here's a man who has not gone to their schools, has not studied under them, and he is standing there as if he has the authority to tell everyone else what to do. He's taking their power away from them. Uh, he's undermining them. He is, he is, he's not going to let them even correct him. When they, when they see that he's getting it wrong, he doesn't let them, he, they, say, they say, knock it off. And he says, no. Because he seems to think he's there to correct them. And they're very offended. He's teaching the Bible, but he's not authorized to teach the Bible. He's a threat. And they want him removed. And that's going to lead to his crucifixion. That's the, uh, by the way, parentheses here, a big and important parentheses. Hopefully you all like history. If you don't like history as a study, it's only because your teacher taught it wrong. It's just, it's just stories, and everyone likes stories. And, and there's a pattern of history. This, this pattern happens all the time within Christianity. And we should take note that it is 2017, and I think it'd be October 31st. Do math, Mike. This is not hard math. 1517, when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And some of you are saying, I don't know what that is. Google it. This is the 500th anniversary year of the Reformation. You say, I don't know what the Reformation is. Google it. Because it's very important to us. It's very, there would be no free America if it wasn't for the, Re- the Reformation. But instead of giving you all that history, I just want to say that the same exact thing happens throughout Christian history. Um, the, following the Reformation, you had many people reading the Bible and then preaching the Bible in an unauthorized manner. Uh, John Bunyan, for example, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, found himself in jail a good bit of his life because the Church of England said, you are not authorized to preach the Bible. It's the same thing that happens right here. Right? You're not allowed to preach. You're not one of us. You weren't trained by us. You're not ordained by us. You won't be corrected by us. You're not allowed to do this. And in fact, the Reformation had many good, solid preachers in Europe burned at the stake, killed, and even it even happens in small towns all across Pennsylvania. Um, and often, the Pharisees aren't the priests. They're the leading families of the church. 
And the preacher comes in, and he doesn't say what we want him to say. He doesn't teach what we want him to teach. So the leading uh, families of the church, they say, you're not authorized to preach the Bible here. You're not doing it right. That's not the way we do it around here. They have secret meetings, and they run them out. It's the same pattern. And God never likes it. In that parenthesis... Look back to the text for a second. It said, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You might be saying, who are the Herodians? This is a political move. The Pharisees, um, they're, they're priests, right? They do the, they're pastors. They, they preach, they, they do religious stuff. The Herodians are, um, are political people. The Romans run everything in Israel during this day and age. But they, 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 there's a guy named Herod who, who uh, uh, has a lot of kids, and they're all named Herod. It's kind of like George Foreman. And they, their family rules Israel under the Romans. They're like a public government. Um, they're not really good Israelites. They were really Edomites, which if you're into Bible history, the children of Esau, there's, they ceased to be. And whatever Edomites were left were sucked back into Judaism. And so the Herodians were kind of not respected by the religious people. They didn't like them. The Pharisees didn't like Herodians. Why are you? You're just puppets of the Romans. You're not even good Jews. But here you'll see that uh, war makes strange bedfellows. Here they are going to the Herodians, the political people, and saying, look, this Jesus guy, I don't know if you're watching Capernaum and uh, the Galilee. Your eyes are down Jerusalem or something, but this guy's stirring things up. He's coming into our synagogues, and the people are going after him, and he's not listening to us. Jesus knows his provocation will lead to violence against himself. From early in his ministry, he spoke of his own demise. You might want to ask this question. Why would Jesus, who is the son of the living God, why would he do the things that lead to this division, that would lead to his death and his destruction? The answer is Jesus came to earth to start a fight he expected to lose. Jesus always expected to lose the fight. He came here to be the least, to be the servant of all, to suffer for all. It was, he, he comes speaking only truth, but he does not come to win in one sense. He comes to lose. He comes to lose to the other side. Now, ultimately, it's victory for us. And the good news of the gospel is God is on your side. And so when he becomes man and he comes and lives among us, when he loses on that cross, you win. Because all the sins you committed, everything you're ashamed of, was laid on him and all the anger of God at sin was placed on his innocent body so that you would not have to be punished for sin if you follow him. If you receive Jesus Christ, you do not have to be punished. You can be forgiven all your sins. So if you have not yet, turn your back on your old life. Turn your back on your sins and follow Christ and have forgiveness of sins. That's why he did it. But you know what? When you think about the cross, you got to think a little bit about how guilty it makes the human race. Adams, if you think man is basically good, you're not paying close enough attention. you got to look closer and just watch people. They always fight. They always kill. They always divorce. They always beat each other up. They always steal from each other. Uh, they always lie. They always uh, blaspheme God. Man is basically not good. And if you really want to see the evil of man, take an innocent man from heaven, the only innocent man, and look what they did to him. Adam's race is not only saved when Jesus is on the cross, it's indicted. 
Not only are we saved from our sins, but our sins are proven. For the only one who is ever innocent came. And he could have protected himself. He could have killed us. But if he put down his arms and didn't box with us and said, do what you will, we killed him and said, you're guilty. And it's already starting with the Pharisees. Second observation here. In both of these cases, because there's two cases about the Sabbath, right? One about them picking the, the grains on a Saturday, the other about healing a man. In both of these cases, the issue is less about the Sabbath, at least from Jesus' point of view, than about Jesus prioritizing the good of man over stringent religious rules. In other words, God prioritizes the good of mankind, where the priests are prioritizing stringent religious rules. You know, the don't play cards, don't go to movies... Don't go to church if the women aren't wearing dresses. Everybody read the King James. If you're not doing it right, you know, that's the Pharisees. Now, what was happening was on Saturday, you're not allowed to do any work. But if you read the Bible, you'll find out that in the Bible, it never defines the work you're not supposed to do on Saturday. So the the Pharisee says, don't worry, we'll figure this out ourselves. I mean, God kind of... Expects you to figure out what work is. (laughs) And so they list out everything that's work and everything that's not work. And one thing you're definitely not allowed to do is reap. I mean, if you're going out into your fields with your with your big John Deere and you're you're just mowing down your 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 fields and you're and you're harvesting food, clearly that's work. So these guys are picking grain. Isn't that the same thing? Actually, it isn't. In fact, there is a law. In the book of Moses, in the books of Moses, that say that if, if 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 your neighbor is walking through your field, he is allowed to pick grains and eat them. He can't reap though. He can't come and steal all your stuff. But if he's hungry and you got corn, he can come and just start chewing on your corn. It's okay. But their laws were so stringent they had made that illegal. By the way. There are still a very small minority of Jews, very small, still keeps the Sabbath, really keeps the Sabbath today. There's not many. I mean, if you go to Israel, you say, well, don't they keep the Sabbath? Everything's closed on the Sabbath. You might say that, but they don't live like, they don't live in an orthodox way. But if you read the real rules, you know, you're not even allowed to tear a piece of paper today if you're a good Jew, right? You can't even tear a piece of paper because you're not allowed to be making shapes because that could be a pattern or work and you may accidentally tear something like work. And you might think, well, that's silly. Well, that's how it was back then with the Pharisees too. They were tough. And so they said, Jesus, why aren't, if you're going to be a good teacher of the Bible, why aren't you stopping them from what they're doing? It's Saturday. They're not allowed to pick those grains. Jesus' answer here is is very interesting because he doesn't confront the Sabbath. He goes another direction, which I find strange, actually. And he said, why don't you stop your men from breaking the Sabbath? And then he said, his answer was, well, didn't King David break religious rules when he fed his men? How come I can't break your rules and feed my men? He didn't even focus on the Sabbath because there's nothing in, in the Bible. The, the story of King David getting that, that bread of presence, there's nothing in it about that being on a Sabbath. So he's, he's focusing on the religious rules. He says, well, King David took his guys and fed them breaking rules. I'm going to break some rules too. I'm breaking your rules. And you don't like it, do you? The guy with a withered hand? (laughs) That one always blows me away. 
Somebody can heal a withered hand and you're worried about what day of the week he does it on. Oh my word. (laughs) Can't you do that tomorrow? His hand will be withered tomorrow. Jesus, though, he goes this way with it. He asks them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath? Not by their laws, but by the laws of the Bible. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? To save a life or kill? They were silent. It's an easy question. Easy question, guys. It's lawful to do good. (laughs) It's lawful to save. But they're not going to say that because they had so many rules of you weren't allowed to tie a knot or untie a knot on a Saturday. You couldn't tie your shoes. No kidding. You couldn't tie your shoes. An Orthodox, really serious Jew can't do it today on a Saturday. Because it's work. So if I, if I say, yes, it's, you're supposed to do good, he's going to come up with something that breaks one of our laws that's really work. So they just, like cowards, were silent. And what does their silence equal? Their guilt. But I want you to notice that in both cases, where's Jesus' concern? He's concerned for the hunger of his men. He's concerned for a man whose hand is withered. Where's the Pharisees' concern? On religious rules. We as believers need to keep this in mind. We are first members of the same family. Family of God through Christ. We should care for one another first. Church folks get mean over most, so many non-essential matters. Some of you are, uh, Harvard's been just about your only church, and I'm glad, you know. I think some people, when the, it's the only church they have, they can be uh, excited about it, and they go to another church that they're sad, or they can be critical of it because they haven't been out there and seeing how things are out there. <laughs> but, but a lot of you have been to other churches, and you know that the scariest day of the month is the business meeting. You're not even sure you want to go. How many can give me an amen on that? Because they're going to fight about everything. And they do. They fight about, about you know, if, if the first day someone brings drums on that stage, I quit this church. How dare he just change the order of worship? Deco- how, you can't move the cross. We have to decorate this church. Building issues, frequency and manner of taking communion, clapping your hands during worship, the name of the church. And they just, they will fight and divide the church over these things. I'm saying this because we don't, never think we're very far from being Pharisees ourselves. Doing good and not evil before God and our fellow man is the essence of true religion. Third observation is that the Sabbath is made for the benefit of man. Jesus blows them away with that one. He just declares a principle. Here are the great teachers, and they've studied the great teachers of their people. They know all the great rabbis' teachings. They know all the books of Moses. And Jesus, who hasn't studied uh, their rabbis, he does know his Bible, he wrote it, um, but then he, he just blows out a principle and says, here's a true principle for you. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's nowhere in the Bible. This is just God says, this is awesome. You ever have these questions? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did you do this? Well, here's one. 
when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why I'm not allowed to tie a knot on Saturday. You know? A lot of little Jewish boys asking that. I don't know. Well, God came to earth and said, let me answer. The, why I did the Sabbath? I didn't, I didn't make the Sabbath to enslave you. I made it as a gift for you. The Sabbath isn't a burden. It's a blessing. Pharisees made it one of the hardest days of the week. One of the most difficult days of the week was the Sabbath because it was hard. You're not allowed to carry things on the Sabbath. You can't carry things. If you walk out of your house carrying a thing, you're working. I mean, this is a, it's so easy to break the rules on Saturday and be guilty. Pharisees made it tough. They're not the only ones. I was talking with our, our campus pastor of Freeport. He said when he was a kid, because of his parents' religious tradition, he hated Sundays because they wouldn't let him do anything. Nothing. Nothing. They would, he could sit on the porch. He wasn't allowed to swing on the swing outside. He wasn't allowed to play. He wasn't allowed to do nothing. He just couldn't wait for the day to be over. I do think, though, we go the other way today. In our freedom, we act like the Sabbath doesn't even exist. So let, let, me, let me veer off and let's talk a little bit about the Sabbath today and how we should apply it. First of all, know that the Sabbath matters. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's right in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. And look what the instruction is. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. We're always trying to get out of work. Why do I got to work? Why do I have to waste my life working? How come I can't retire early? Why do I got to work? That's not the way God set it up. You're supposed to work. Work your whole life long. That's the way it works. Sorry. Stinks to be us. That's, we live in a fallen world. Food doesn't just jump into your lap. You've got to do labor. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Sabbath to the Lord. It's a rest to the Lord. Uh, The seventh to the Lord. And on it, you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock. (laughs) That chicken's working. Stop him. (laughs) Or the sojourner who's within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I, I've got to, we've got to notice something. This one out of the Ten Commandments is the one that could most be called arbitrary. In other words, all the others are moral laws. Thou shalt not murder. You know, that's, it's wrong to murder people. Thou shalt not steal. This one, God just chose a day. It, it almost seems arbitrary. And of course, nothing's arbitrary with God, but it doesn't seem to come out of any moral code. Do you know what I mean? Like, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are moral issues. Taking a day off doesn't seem like a moral issue. And then, why did God make it the seventh day? You know, people argue about how long were those seven days, or they symbolic seven days, or the ages, or they seven 24 hour days. But do you realize He's God? He can do anything with those days. He could have done everything in one day. He could have done everything in 25 days. He chose six days as his way of telling you the story of creation. He chose that. That seems out of the blue, right? And then it says he rested on the seventh day. You ever stop and think about that phrase, he rested? 
Because it's anthropomorphic language. It's not, it doesn't fit God. It doesn't fit God. God is not bound by any time. He doesn't get tired. This has been a rough six days. If I don't take a load off, I'm going to have to stop being God. I'm so tired. He wasn't tired. He wasn't tired. He didn't say, well, I'm 24 hours. He's not bound by some little sun that he made in one of these little galaxies of his gigantic universe. Do you see, it's, it's kind of a strange thing to say to us. Why would, why would, why would you say that? Is, is God ever tired? No. I mean, if God rested truly for a day and did nothing, the universe would cease to be. He holds us all together. In a way, God never works, and he never rests either. I mean, he never gets tired. <laughs> but on the other hand, he's always active. So he's clearly talking about something for us. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you the story of making the earth six days, and then I rested or stopped. Now, what I want you to do as human beings is do that. What's the Sabbath? What does honoring the Sabbath teach us? What teaches us God is holy. He's the creator. God being the creator is what makes us holy. Guarantee the reason the world is going to embrace Antichrist and the idea that humans can be God is because they embrace evolution, the idea that everything is here by accident. And and that's foolishness. It's just foolishness. Everything's a great accident. Um, God is the first cause. He's the prime mover. He's the one who put us here. Therefore, we are creatures. Therefore, we are property, in a sense, of him. Therefore, he deserves whatever kind of payback he wants from us. Whatever he wants from us. He is holy. We are creatures. And the Sabbath is your day to remember that. It's the day you give to the Lord. It's interesting that it's the seventh day, because normally he wants the first fruit. Second. You're supposed to work six days. Six days. Be concerned about practical human worries. One of the difficulties of our school system is we train children to think that they are only supposed to work seven or eight hours a day, five days a week. And that's not the real world. And then they get out of there and they they think, how come I can't make a living at 40 hours a week and play all the time? Because if you're going to make a living, most of you are going to have to work 50 hours a week. Sometimes more. Sometimes less. But, you got, but then you got stuff to do at home. Six days are made for working. It's not Friday and then, whoo, I'm off for three days. He says, be concerned about practical human concerns for six days. But then, on that seventh day, give it back to me. Be concerned about me and don't be concerned about all your worldly things. Rest. He has designed our bodies and our minds. And then he said, and our emotions, work six days, take one day off. That is the rhythm he wants. How should Christians honor the Sabbath day today? First, don't fight over whether it's Saturday or Sunday. There are Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists. People say, well, it's in the Ten Commandments. You've got to do it. The reason why you don't have to is really twofold. One, the first Christians quickly moved to the first day because that's the resurrection day. And the Jews had the Sabbath and everyone, they, they, took, they took, it was very early on, they began to call it the Lord's Day. And that is when the church would gather for worship. It wasn't the only day they would gather. They'd gather whenever they could, but that was the day of rest. 
But the better reason is that the Sabbath, listen, the Sabbath rest is itself a reflection of a greater reality. In other words, God put the Sabbath into the world, the day you do not work, to show you that you are saved by grace through faith and not as the result of works. It's a picture that he built right into our lives, into the lives of Jews. You work six days, you take one day off. That's salvation day, really. And this truth is shown to us in Hebrews chapter nine, or chapter 4, verse 9, where it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his So he's saying literally to be saved every day is Saturday. Every day is the Sabbath. You you, you work so hard to be justified before God, to not be bad, to to try to earn your way to heaven. If you had to get from, if you had to say to somebody, get from earth to heaven, figure it out yourself. They all would naturally think of, I've got to be good and I've got to sacrifice. That's what all humans think about. I've got to be better, I've got to sacrifice. They compare with one another. I've got to be better than you uh, um, and I've got to sacrifice. Uh, because we all feel guilty. And it's work, 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 work to get to heaven. All the religions, work, 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 work to get to heaven. And what the Bible says is, no, it's not by works you're going to get there. It's by resting. He did the work. And the Sabbath is a picture of that. Salvation is actually called the Sabbath rest of the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall into disobedience. To be saved is to enter into the Sabbath. In a sense... Every day, we don't work anymore. What do I got to do to please God today? If you know Christ, nothing. Nothing. He's pleased because the blood of his son shed for your sins and you trust in him. That's the only, that's, that's the only way you can please God is by what his son did for you. So you're resting every day. It's, it's like marriage. Marriage is a very serious thing, but it's only a reflection of the true reality of salvation. Ephesians 5 shows us that God invented marriage, a man and a woman forever, to show the masculine and feminine within God and his church. And that marriage never ends. Your marriage will end when one of you dies. But So like marriage is a reflection of salvation, the Sabbath is a reflection of the rest from the law. Paul makes this clear, that we are free from legalistic definitions of the Sabbath, when he says in Colossians 2, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's a shadow. Taking that seventh day of rest is a shadow of the real thing called salvation. Now, even though it's a it's a, it's a, it's a shadow, you don't, doesn't, I don't, doesn't mean we should set it aside because the church has always kept a day. Just like you wouldn't set aside marriage. The, the, the pattern of setting aside one day for rest and worship has been an unbroken tradition from the foundation of the church. Humans haven't changed. We still need to rest. Let, let me... Let me when I went to Columbia International University to go to seminary, my wife and I moved there. I was 30, um, and my wife was years old, and so we were already adults. 
and we had our, our lives patterns fixed, whatever. And then, but I had to sign this thing that said I would live by the rules of the school, which is fine. I mean, it's their rules, and they wanted a Christian community that respected rules. And one of them was you're not going to work at all on Sunday. You can go to church and do ministry, but you can't work. And, and then they, they, they didn't define all the work, but they gave you some examples, like pushing a lawnmower, which is always work. I think riding a lawnmower, fun. Pushing a lawnmower, this is why we pay people. Why would you do that? You know, um, cleaning up, cleaning your dishes, cleaning your house, work. Things you don't want to do, work. In fact, they said schoolwork was work. And, and so that we wouldn't sin, they gave us Monday off. No kidding. I had four days of school. whole time I was in seminary. Mondays were off because they didn't want to tempt us to work on Sunday because they know we'd do our homework. So I said to my wife, this is what they want, and i got to sign this thing. She says, okay, good for you. I said, well, if I'm doing it, you're doing it. She says, well, I'm the wife. I don't have to do this. Because we both thought, how, do you get how, can you, how can you get everything done if you take one day where you don't do anything? You know, you've got to have, do some work every day, don't you? But we both took the challenge together. And you know what we found out? It was awesome. First, I found out that you work six full days. I have plenty of time to get the work done. But here's the best part. Guilt-free rest one day of the week. Now, I know that there are a lot of people here who you never feel guilt-free when you're resting. And you know why? Because you don't take a Sabbath. That's it. You don't take a day of rest. You don't know what it feels like to have guilt-free rest. Well, I want to tell you, God gave us the gift. We just didn't notice. Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. Now, I know there's practical concerns because our society does not respect the Sabbath or Sundays like it did. And uh, a lot of times you have to work on the Sabbath. Or you may choose to do other things. Um, Seven hard days can make one week. (laughs) So I'm going to suggest to you as a Christian, you, you need this pattern in your life. And I'm saying I have never broken the pattern with a few exceptions. There are emergency exceptions, but I haven't broken the pattern since I left that school 20 years ago. Over, no, oh, yeah, whenever. I don't know how old I am. I was 30, right? So, yeah. So here's my suggestions for you. Worship with God's people every week. If you can do it on Sunday, that's good. Now, I realize that sometimes you have work on Sunday. At Harvest in Catanning, we have a Friday night service, and, 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 and I've driven to all the campuses from where I live, and none of them are too far. If you have to work Sundays, come on Fridays to the Catanning campus at Harvest. But setting aside time to worship with God's people, not just listen to it on the radio or on the internet, but come and worship. Be the church. The word church means the gathering. Come and gather. But for those of who are Friday night regulars, it's a day they want. Sometimes they may think, well, now I can work for two more days. And that's not good. Because you may work all day Friday, go to church. And then you say, well, then I would, I would say if you work all day Friday, then go to church. You should still be taking one more day of the week where you're not doing anything except rest. And give that day to God. So this is not a day where I'm going to be concerned about worldly matters. And you can play. You can tie knots and you can throw a frisbee or whatever it is you want to do. 
Don't sin. And remember your God. Have a day of rest every week. The worst people about this are normally pastors. Many times pastors burn out. I didn't think I ever would, but hey, there you go. But I remember many times telling fellow pastors, they were saying, I don't know if I can take it anymore. I said, do you get to take a day off? They said, no, I don't have time to take a day off. There's too many needs. Yeah, you're Superman. God can't run the world without you. And I'd say the same to you. God can't run your life without, and have you actually take a day off too because you're the one human since he made the earth that can't pull this off. Stop thinking of five-day weeks. Think of six-day weeks. Never, never feel bad if you've got to work six hard days. Get all your chores done on one day. All right. Yeah, and teach your kids to honor the Lord. My kids, we, they never, if they went on vacation, they went to church. Well, they've been in a lot of foreign churches. Just, you just teach them. This is what we do. We honor a day of the week. And um, anyway... Fourth observation, that was a long one, but we had a, a lot to cover. The last two aren't that fat long. Here we go. One, or four. I'm on four, if you're wondering. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. This blows me away. In the middle of saying this, he says, he says, by the way, the Son of Man, and he's referring to himself. That's a messianic title that he got from the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, the Son of Man, me, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, that has got to freak out the priests. We run the Sabbath. We tell people when they're right on the Sabbath and wrong on the Sabbath, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, that, it's just wild. Could you imagine a parent saying to their kid, you're going to do your chores. Mom, I am Lord of the chores. Mom's going to be like, well, we're going to put you in your place. And that's exactly what those Pharisees thought. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. If, if I want my guys to pluck heads of grain, they're plucking heads of grain, baby. And if I want to heal withered hands, I'm going to heal withered hands. I know why I invented this day. You guys apparently don't. You've made it a burden. It was supposed to be a day of rest that you give back to me. I love the boldness of Jesus. He's no coward. He says things out of love that are true. Not out of, he's not trying to hurt people. Will you be that bold for Jesus? And I don't mean politically bold. Going on Facebook, telling everyone they're going to hell. Because they voted wrong. Which is not love, and it's dumb. You're never going to change this country through politics. Right? Politics follows culture. That's, keep that rule in your head, and you won't be so mad at the world. Politics always follows culture. To change the country, you've got to change the culture. That's hard work. No, but will you be this bold for Jesus in this culture? Like he is. Don't go and declare yourself Lord of the cafeteria or nothing. <laughs> but bow your head and say your prayer just like you would if you were at home and let people know Jesus gave you the food. Now, finally, very interesting to see Jesus' emotions. For the fifth observation is God is both grieved and angry when religious folks act stubbornly. The Pharisees refuse to answer the question. It's a simple question, guys. Is it right to do good or evil on Saturday? Crickets. These guys are so hard-hearted. They're going to sit with a guy with this withered hand, and they're not going to answer my question because they do not want, they don't care about this guy at all. 
The Bible says he got angry. It does not say he lost his temper. And he grieved. He was sad for them. He was sad for the Pharisees because he loved them too. How can you be so hard-hearted? God has emotions. Jesus has emotions. His are always right. My anger is always wrong. Anger of man never fulfills the righteousness of God. But it's interesting to see Jesus' emotions. He looked around them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. God has not changed. Has your stubbornness stopped you from doing good? Has your stubbornness kept you in sin? Can I say something to every adult in here? Especially every single adult. The Bible says you're not supposed to have sex with anyone before you get married. You guys just are so stubborn and hard-hearted towards God. I know it because I do the weddings. I ask people straight to their face, do not come to me about your relationship problem if you do not want to hear the question, are you sleeping together? I just had a conversation with a guy from the church recently. He's saying he's having problems with his relationship. None of you guys know who this is, and there's hundreds of people, so you couldn't guess. And I said, well, tell me this. Are you having sex? Have you kept her pure? No. Why are you asking me to have God bless what you're doing? Or is there some other sin? You hold on to your racism. You want your Confederate flag and show those black folks what for. Or is there some other sin? You're just stubborn. Or you won't forgive somebody. So there's fights in your family or fights in your church. You just won't let it go. And you're right, because God is certainly on your side. Or maybe you're not even a Christian because you're stubborn. You're just stubborn. I don't care who drags me to church. I'm just not going to believe this crap. How do you, God doesn't go, oh, that's okay. He's, he's grieved by your hardness of heart. He's like, I'm here for you. I'm here to give you everything and, you're, and it's your fault. You're stubborn. No, you haven't proved it to me. Wrong. You know he's there. I don't ever, and I know I have, I don't ever want to make God feel anger or grieved. I, I know I have. Lord, forgive me. Keep me from doing it again. The center of our faith never changes. What we do always proves what we believe. There's a lot of people wandering America who are certain they're saved and they are not. No, I don't know who's saved and who isn't, but I do know that the Bible says faith without works is dead. It doesn't exist. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? But I'll often run into people who are acting a fool, and I'll say, do you know Jesus? And they say, well, I did pray and receive him into my heart, so yes. And I'm like, pfft. I don't want to stand too close to you on Judgment Day. You do not get saved because you prayed a prayer. You get saved when Jesus Christ comes and lives in you and you're born again. And the thing that can stop that is your own stubbornness. Don't let that happen. And for the Christians, don't get stubborn against your God. The rule of our life, if we could eat a text... Just eat it and have it become part of our DNA. 
all those little DNA strands, every gene having um, this in the, encoded in the DNA. If I could pick, I'd pick Ephesians 4, 32 to 5, 2. If I could just put that in every Christian, in their DNA, and in my own, in my own. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see our wonderful Savior Jesus, when he walked among us, he got together with all the sinners and said, I'm here to love you. Withered hand, let me take care of that. Let me teach you the truth. He, he was tender-hearted towards us. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. What a beautiful, just, wouldn't that be great if that's in every cell of your body? So whatever God does, that's what I want to do. What's God do? Be imitators as beloved children. Look how you're allowed to look at yourself. I am, God looks at me and he's just nuts. He just loves me. I'm his special one. Hey, you may look at this body and you may look at this face and say, eh, but God goes, he's awesome. He pulls out his iPhone and shows the angels, look at Mike. They're like, more pictures of Mike, great. Think of you of yourself as a beloved child instead of a slave who needs to do right in order to please an angry God. It will change your outlook. Be imitators of God as beloved children and then do what? Walk in love. Let love be your guide. As, as Christ, he, he is our example, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. And we're back to the cross where he said, that, why did you go to that cross, Jesus? This is the love of God shown to the world. That when Adam's race was doomed in sin, God said, I, Jesus just said, I came to love you and I'll do whatever it takes to save you, including laying down my life. If you're not a Christian, it's time to change today. You make the decision to follow Christ in an instant. And for those of you playing a game, you think I prayed a prayer and I'm okay, it's time for you to change today because you may not know Christ I want to love and not grieve God. How about you? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.